0: Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Syrian went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius, the disciples as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending the gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Do keep your reading open in front of you or your Bibles open. We'll make reference to that as we go along. But uh, allow me to pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that you reliably speak through your word. As we open it together as your people, your spirit is here with us. Please help us to understand, to hear from you, and to apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you've been studying the book of Acts, you will no doubt have noticed that the, the key theme of the whole book is the unstoppable advance of the word of God throughout the whole world. That's why this series, I take it, is called The Spreading Flame. It's a great metaphor for the way that the gospel just keeps spreading and spreading. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this was the mission that Jesus gave to his people after his resurrection, before his ascension. The last words he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts records the progress uh, of that mission. This is uh, the the mission as it's set out, and the rest of the book fills in the picture of what actually happened, how that happened. First, the the gospel spreads through Jerusalem in chapters 1 to 7, then uh, through Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 to 10, and then to the ends of the earth, the, the known world throughout the rest of the chapters from chapter 11. This is roughly how it breaks down. And, and in this morning's reading, we come to a major milestone in that spreading fire. To, to uh, think of the metaphor, it's as though the, the apostles are tending to a campfire in Judea and Samaria. It's growing, it's bigger, it's a bonfire, and then all of a sudden they look over their shoulders and they realize, oh no, it's a wildfire. This thing is out of control. And that is sort of what's happening right here in chapter 11 with the surprise conversion of Cornelius that you've seen over the last two weeks. Uh, With that fresh in our minds, Luke sort of rewinds the narrative, goes back in time to, to chapter 8, and he says, uh, when Stephen was killed, we've just followed all the disciples who went to Judea and Samaria, but, oh yeah, there were these other guys that were scattered from uh, the persecution, and they went into the Gentile territories of the world, and they started spreading the gospel there, and while everyone was looking the other way, suddenly... There's a church on Gentile territory. And from these verses this morning, I think uh, the the key things that Luke wants us to take away are these. First is that the church grows by the Lord's hand. Secondly, that the church grows where God's word is spoken. Thirdly, that the church grows into genuine fellowship. So, So that's where we're going. First of all, the church grows by the Lord's hand. I don't know how many people here are historians. Did anybody study history at university? You're a timid bunch, (laughs) if you did. Well, you know, I didn't study history. I studied philosophy, so I'm used to talking about fields that I have no right to talk about. So let me talk to you about a theory of history. If you like history, if you read biographies, maybe you're a political junkie, well, you've no doubt come across the great man theory of history. The great man theory of history says that the events of world history, whether it's the great discoveries or wars or the rise and fall of civilization uh, or political movements, these are all decisively shaped by great men and women uniquely gifted and able, and, and that they drive history forward and shape it. So, for example, <coughs> for example, y- you can explain how the civil rights movement triumphed in the U.S. in the 1960s by looking to the bold rhetoric and the moral authority of Martin Luther King Jr. He's the great man. Or you... To use a a more trivial example, how did Apple become the wealthiest company in the world? It was through the inspired and visionary leadership of Steve Jobs, right? The great men and women of history. And and you can think of all sorts of other examples from Constantine to Mao Zedong to whoever uh, is big and influential in the world today. It's one way of looking at history. And some would agree with it, some wouldn't. It, it's got some merit to it, but it seems to me that this kind of thinking might be, you tell me, it might be particularly influential here in Hong Kong and in much of East Asia as the greatest men and women of history become gods who are then worshipped. And maybe that's why our shelves in our bookstores are full of biographies of tycoons. Because we We love to see humans as the shapers of history, the driving force. And we flatter ourselves to think, if I can just see how those great men and women did it, maybe I can shape history and drive it forward. Maybe I can be that influential. But I want to suggest to you this morning that our reading completely undermines the great man theory of history, at least of church history. Scan the passage with me again and see who is held uniquely responsible for the growth and establishment of the first church in the Gentile world. Verse 19 Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what, the, saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. See how at every point at every point in the expansion of the church into Gentile, non-Jewish territory, it is attributed primarily to the Lord. It's his hand at work. It's his grace in action. It's his spirit filling, and it's him drawing people to himself, bringing people. Yes, there, there were other people involved. There were individuals involved, but All of them are completely anonymous. Did you notice? There's no names. There's no uh, little group or or missionary that went. They're just anonymous, ordinary Christians. And when word gets back to Jerusalem and and they send out Barnabas, whose name we do know, and he grabs Saul and, and they go in, all they can do is marvel at what God has done in this place. And support what's already happening there. And and throughout the book of Acts, and I think throughout all of scripture as well, we see that the events of world history are decisively driven not by great men and women. Not by impersonal social or economic forces. Not by chance, but by the Lord's hand. From the creation of the world through to the present day and into the future until the end of history, God is working to bring all things together under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We could call it the Great God Theory of History, but actually, it's just the Christian understanding of history. It's what Christians have always believed about history. And I think it's meant to give us great confidence. I think confidence because whatever the opposition, whatever the persecution, whatever the difficulties inside or outside the church, inside ourselves or outside ourselves, the gospel will advance, the church will grow, and God's saving purposes will be accomplished. Because God is doing the work and He cannot be hindered. And that is a very sweet certainty to have in a very uncertain world. You know, my wife and I, we had a barbecue last week in our house. And as the evening progressed, there were several guests who were sitting around chatting about the state of the world and where the world is headed at the moment. There was talk about the end of globalization, the shifting political trends of countries around the world, the looming threat of war, the encroachment of climate change, and, well, it wasn't all my guess. There were some playing board games in the other room, and maybe I should have joined them, because I just sat sort of quietly and listened. I didn't have anything to contribute. The fact is, I don't know. And none of us know what the next year or decade or beyond will hold. But if the word of God is true, then there is at least one certainty. That whatever happens, the Lord has ordained it. And the almighty hand of the Lord will use it to drive the gospel of Jesus Christ further and further out into the world to grow his church in uncharted territory, territories. It's the only sure bet. Now these maps are not to be taken as gospel. I've pulled them off of Wikipedia. Uh, they just give you an estimate. Take them with a grain of salt, take them with a whole bottle of salt. The point will be made though. The dark blue areas are where the church was known to be firmly established by 325 AD. Uh, we, we know it actually reached other places, but at least these places had firmly received the gospel by 600 AD, the light blue. Now, this map shows from 2014 where the gospel had reached to, how far it had penetrated into the world. The darker the blue, the, the, the higher percentage of people who would call themselves Christians. Now, Are all those people trusting the Lord Jesus for their salvation? Uh, I wouldn't assume so, but they're calling themselves Christians. They have access to the gospel. And so take it with a grain of salt, but you have to see the point. In 2,000 years of history, the gospel has gone nearly everywhere. And it's, it's entering uncharted territory still to this day. And so... This is what God has been doing for 2,000 years. It's his growth project, and he's driving it forward. And according to 2 Peter chapter 3, the reason why God hasn't wound this whole thing up and and dissolved the world and, and Christ's return is because he's giving people time. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to repent and to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That's God's work. And so God is working to grow the church. But you might ask, how? How does he do that? What is the means and what is the method that he uses to grow the church? And I think that's the next major thing that we need to see from this reading. The the church grows where God's word is spoken. That's the pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. And so God works to grow the church wherever believers are courageous enough to open their mouths and speak of Jesus. You see it at Pentecost. So Peter, he stands up in this large crowd. He proclaims the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit descends on them in that moment. And you saw it with Cornelius. Peter, there were visions. Peter comes to Cornelius. He tells him the gospel and then the Spirit descends in power on the Gentiles, and you see the same pattern here. Uh, But we see much more clearly the usual way that that happens, through multiple people speaking God's word in different ways over a long period of time. Notice how the word of God organically spreads and takes root eventually in Antioch. The Jewish believers who had heard the gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem, they uh, had believed, they had rejoiced, and then the persecution came and they were scattered. And so chapters 8 through 10 show them uh, a group of disciples scattered all through Judea and Samaria, spreading the gospel to all the Jews there. And then we come to chapter 11 and Luke says, oh, actually, there was another group that were scattered at that time. While everybody's attention was in Judea and Samaria, this other group went off to the Gentile territories. And the refugees and immigrants there did what refugees and immigrants tend to do. They gathered together with their own people, the Jewish people of those areas, and they shared the gospel with them. They told of Jesus. And... In those Gentile areas, there would have been uh, Jewish people who had maybe lived in these cities for generations by that point. They were very comfortable in the Gentile world, the Greek-speaking world. And so when they heard the gospel, they received the gospel, they very naturally shared it with other Greek speakers, the Gentiles around them in the marketplace and, and so forth. And so you see how step by step, By step, the the gospel went from Jerusalem to Cyprus and Cyrene to Antioch until suddenly there is a church in the heart of the Roman Empire, one of the the great cities of the Roman Empire. It was evidently not the work of a, a lone missionary or a small group of leaders because otherwise we would, I think, likely know the names or at least be told that Uh, When Barnabas and Saul came, they spoke with the elders, but we're not told that because it was just ordinary Christians doing what ordinary Christians do, sharing the gospel with the people around them as they have opportunity. Now, Antioch, it was north of Israel. It was on the border of modern-day Turkey and Syria, and it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire having perhaps more than 300,000 people. Some estimate up to 600,000 people. The point is, it was a lot for that time. And although it was founded by Greeks and and taken over by the Roman Empire, it had sizable minority populations of Jews, of Persians, of Indians, and even of Chinese who came to, to do business there. Does that sound familiar to any? which is why it was called the capital of the east, the queen of the east. And so you can see how through the ordinary organic process of Christians speaking the gospel to the people around them, Antioch became a strategic location for the further spread of the gospel, right? Because the world is in the city already. And when they hear and they go out to the rest of the east, they carry the gospel with them. And Antioch becomes a hub for Paul's missionary journeys as you read through the rest of Acts. He keeps coming back there to regroup and then go out again. And so the Lord expanded the church into Gentile territory as Christians shared the gospel. But notice that even when Barnabas and Saul arrive as reinforcements, the strategy doesn't change. They encourage the church by the word of God. They instruct the church by the word of God. They simply carry on doing the word ministry, offering uh, all that they know and all that they're able to the church in Antioch. How do we know that? Well, we aren't told exactly what they taught, but we do know what people started to call them. This is the first place where people were called Christians. And whatever the program of instruction was, I guess that means they were always on about Christ. Think about how strange it is that in a Gentile territory, that's where they're first starting to call Christians Christians. They don't know about the Messiah, but they know these people are always on about this guy who died and rose and ascended, who reigns presently over the world, who will come again in glory. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we need to understand the way that God ordinarily grows His church. It is as Christians speak the good news of Jesus to the people around them. And a great number of people will then be added to the Lord. His hand will move. His grace will act. His spirit will fill. That's how it happens. The growth of the church is the Lord's work. But it is our responsibility to make the most of every opportunity to speak of Jesus whether it's in public or in private whether it's from a platform or in conversation and when the church is established the strategy doesn't change it's the same strategy the word matures believers it em- it encourages believers And so, if you are longing for God to do a powerful work in Hong Kong, and friends, if you're a Christian, how could you not be longing for that? How could that not be the desire of your heart, to see God do something wonderfully powerful in our city? And if that is your desire, well, you don't have to wait for a great man like Billy Graham to come through. You don't have to wait for a great man like Hudson Taylor to come through. You just have to start speaking the gospel. Anonymous, unnamed Christians. And that is how it happened in Antioch. That's how it will happen here. We don't need a special evangelistic event. That can be helpful, but we don't need it. We don't need a a brilliantly written book. That can be helpful, but we don't need it. We don't need a clever strategy of evangelism. It can be helpful again, but it's not necessary. All we have to do is speak because we subscribe to the great God theory of history, don't we? And he has shown over and over again that he sends his spirit in power to the places where believers speak the gospel to wonderfully grow, encourage, and uh, mature his church. And friends, if Antioch was a strategic place, Well, how much more is Hong Kong a strategic place? Whatever the problems of recent years have held, this is still one of the most global cities in the world. There are people from everywhere here. And if we spread the gospel here, who knows where in the world it's going to bear fruit as people go and, and take the gospel with them. That that is one of the reasons why my wife and I moved here in twenty nineteen, and it's no less true in twenty twenty two. When we see people converted and discipled here, they carry the gospel with them wherever they go next. And so if people leave, for whatever reasons people leave, we need to make sure they go with the gospel on their lips. And we need to go with the gospel on our lips. Because God will use that. He has for 2,000 years. He will continue doing it. But you know, that takes conviction. It takes conviction to keep pouring time and energy into people and emotion into people who might not be here for very much longer. You know, you think, well, maybe it's just easier if I, I just invest my time in the people that are around me that I already know that have been here a long time that are going to remain here. But it takes conviction that this is what God is doing in the world, advancing the gospel, to say, No, I'm going to persevere in welcoming new people. I'm going to to invest in the new people in my Bible study group. I'm going to have the the conversations and the coffees and and spend the time to get to know people that might not be here next year because I want to see God advance the gospel. I want to be part of what He's doing in the world. That takes perseverance, that takes conviction. But by God's grace, word ministry done here in Hong Kong will bear fruit in England, in Canada, in Brazil, in the mainland, in Dubai, in all the ends of the earth. It's what God is doing. It's what his word does. But finally, and most briefly, the church grows into genuine fellowship. I wonder if you notice the miraculous events of verses 27 to 30. I'm talking, of course, not about Agabus and his prophecy, but about the church's response. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. While Agabus was no doubt a true prophet of God, he appears later again in the book of Acts with uh, more foretelling Successfully foretelling the future is not necessarily a sign of God's action. We know in the book of Acts and in other parts of the Bible that people foretold the future by the power of demons as well. But the indisputable evidence of God's supernatural power at work is in the response of the church in Antioch to the need. Here's a church of Gentile believers, uh, many Gentile believers, and upon hearing about the coming hardship, what do they do? They they don't say, we we need to work to help ourselves. They say, no, how can we help the Jewish believers that we've never met, that we don't know, that didn't even send anybody to us until we were already established? And they gave voluntarily. They didn't ask, well, how much are they going to need? As if to say, how little can I give? They said, according to our ability, we're going to give. Because they knew how richly they had received from these believers in Jerusalem and Judea. They recognized that the riches of uh, financial riches were nothing in comparison to what they'd received. And they longed to give to what God is doing and to the ones who shared the gospel with them. And so, This is what the gospel always does. It's what it's always done. It's what it always does. It builds fellowship between people who naturally have no interest in one another. It creates sacrificial partnerships between people when it would be easier to ignore and say, I have enough on my plate. I I can't deal with what's happening over there. No, the gospel makes us say, no, I want to help them. According to my ability, what can I do? And it expands our concept of family from our own homes, our own city, our own region. It expands it out to the ends of the earth. It's what the gospel has always done. It's what the gospel is doing now. And so let's pray that God will help us to play our part in what he's doing. Father, we thank you that the gospel has advanced throughout the world in a way that no one could have foreseen but in the way that you had promised that it would over these 2,000 years. And Lord, we see that it happens by your power wherever believers will speak of Jesus. So please help us to speak of Jesus where we have opportunity to think, who are the ones close to me Who are the colleagues, the friends, the family that I can speak to that maybe nobody else can? And Lord, we trust that anonymous Christians that we are, unnamed Christians that we are, through that faithfulness, you will do a powerful work. And that's what we long for, Lord. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.